We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Well, welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation. My guest today is Rebecca Koffler, a Russian-born American citizen who grew up behind the Iron Curtain, unusually became a US intelligence officer where she was able to observe the threat from Russia up close and with strong background knowledge. Her book, Putin's Playbook, delves into the mind of the Russian president and reveals his ambition to dominate America and the West. Rebecca joins me today from Virginia, close to Washington, D.C. Rebecca, welcome to uh, the Water Cooler podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Well, there's much to uh, get into with your book, which you published in America before the invasion of Ukraine. And an Australian edition will be out shortly, updated for Ukraine. But we have to start with Ukraine. I guess this has been for some, the point at which they woke up to something close to the reality of Russia and Putin, rather than the fantasy we've had in our minds for some time. Would you say that's true? And, And how is the Ukraine campaign fit into Putin's wider ambitions? You're absolutely correct, Nick. Uh, Yes, this is a wake-up call for the United States, for the West, uh, including Australia, because uh, Putin is not going to stop with Ukraine. His uh, long game is to reconstitute a supranational alliance similar to the USSR, the country that I was born and raised in that no longer exists. Putin wants to reverse the outcome of the Cold War and to resubjugate former Soviet states back under Moscow's control. And so, unfortunately, we did not pay attention uh, while Putin was uh, developing his playbook. This is the title of my book, Gradually, Methodically. Uh, We dismissed every single warning, and now we are grasping at straws. And you're right, this is a wake-up call. A little bit too late, but nevertheless, it's good that we're having a wake-up call. How far will Putin take this one? I mean, will he stop at Crimea? Is he just looking for a buffer against the West, you know, to protect against this constant fear the Russians seem to have of encirclement? Or or, or is, is it something grander? Does he want to regain the uh, the glory as they would see it of the old soviet union and 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 push his control further into towards the west absolutely he has a very grand vision he wants to make russia great again he always wanted to do that uh he has been hatching a plan for 20 years and it's not just a plan it's actually uh, a strategy that includes a military option. It includes four other instruments, right? Uh, cyber warfare, space warfare, something called active measures, which is a unique tradecraft of Russian intelligence. It has a military option, including uh, the nuclear. And no, he's not going to stop at Crimea. His current goal with Ukraine is to decapitate the Zelensky government. That means he wants Zelensky either killed or he he wants him out. Uh, He wants him to flee and to install 
a pro-Russian regime that he can better control, a regime that will abandon any kind of goal to join the Western community, to join NATO, which Putin believes as threat number one to Russia from the security standpoint. Rebecca, you write this, of course, uh, both as a, a somebody who grew up in the Soviet Union and as somebody who worked in the US intelligence at the highest levels on Russian intelligence, uh, which is why I think your book, Putin's Playbook, uh, is so important and, and, and tells us so much that we probably should have known, but we didn't. Let's, let's just start briefly with your credentials. Tell us briefly about your childhood in Russia, in the old Soviet Union, and, uh, and your experience of socialism firsthand. What was it like? So, uh, yes, you're right. I was born and raised in the uh, former Soviet Union, more specifically in Kazakhstan, which is um, All right. it, this was the second largest uh, republic uh, in the USSR. I grew up there. Then I went to the university in Moscow, Moscow uh, State Pedagogical University. Um, Socialism is, uh, is something that is a terrible system. And I'm actually frightened, Nick, at uh, how normalized it is becoming uh, here in America. I don't know about Australia. I haven't been there. But um, in America, it used to be like a derogatory word, right? Socialism, uh, communism. But now people openly talk about it as a possibility for the United States. And uh, socialism is not what Americans think it is. I think uh, a lot of people are misguided. They've been brainwashed. Socialism is not about all the free stuff. It's about government control over every aspect of, uh, of your life. Um, when everything is free, nothing is available because socialism does not produce enough uh, goods and services for everyone. And so those who are in power, right, which under socialism, it was a communist. And here in the U.S., if God forbid it would ever, you know, take root, it would be the elites, the same elites that are right now, you know, uh, dictate to us to wear masks and to do all sorts of other things that make no sense. So uh, this is what it would be like, and we're having a preview of it with all the unreasonable rules that have been put on us and the government, what I call apparatchiks, right? It's a Russian word, the members of the government apparatus. They themselves don't follow the rules. So it's exactly what I was experiencing growing up, and it frightens me that now I'm living in this same, you know, nightmare that's unfolding and I don't want it here I don't want it for my children I don't want it for myself I don't want it for anyone I'll come back to that because your observations on that are, are, are chilling quite frankly but 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 first to you know the idea of communism whether Putin is running now a communist government or not but I mean whether he is or he isn't whether we define it as a communist government or we don't define it as a communist government it seems to me one of the huge mistakes we made here in the West, both with Russia and with China, was to ensure to, to imagine that with Glasnost, uh, everything changed in Russia. They suddenly became, you know, a friendly, free, and democratic nation. We confused uh, a free market or, or something that, you know, passes for a free market in Russia and and in China uh, for freedom itself. Uh, we and we for, we we just 
ignored the fact that the underlying characteristics of both regimes had not fundamentally changed. Is that right? Absolutely. You you nailed it, uh, Nick. So when the West expected uh, the so-called peace dividend, right, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russians uh, always knew that um, being what they call a great power, right, or derjava is, uh, is the Russian word, is something that they always would aspire to and they would come back. So they elected exactly the person who would get them there. And Putin was elected actually four times, right? There's a reason why his approval ratings range between 60 and 80. Right now they're on the lower side, but by Western standards, even 60 is still high. And... Uh, that's because the West completely doesn't understand the Russian culture. They, uh, Putin has been maligned. Um, he's been called crazy. And yes, he's an absolute dictator. He is a typical Russian authoritarian. Uh, the same culture produced Putin as uh, produced Ivan the Terrible, who killed his own son. Um, Joseph Stalin, who murdered millions of their own people. But there's a reason why somebody like Putin was elected. And that is because the Russians prefer security and stability first. And then uh, something that we call individual rights and human rights second. Because if there's no security or stability, there's no human right. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the communists became capitalist. It's the same people, right? This is all semantics, what you call it, socialism, communism. It's the same authoritarian style where the government and business and intelligent, former intelligence, um, they're called Silaviki, they control everything. And then the ordinary people, they have nothing, they have no say, and it's exact saying nothing has really changed. And it's the same thing with China that, that, that you brought it up. And this is just something we don't understand in the West. Russian interference uh, in domestic affairs in the US and elsewhere, indeed in Australia. Uh, you took, This is a big subject of your book, although as you point out, this is only one part of Putin's playbook. But are you right that the Russian government during and after the 2016 presidential election stoked American racial divisions, ideological and political polarisation, a profound distrust of government itself and seething voter anger over the election results. The belief that Putin was put, put the belief that Putin put Trump in office was fueled by a Russian intelligence operation. I just want to play you now uh, uh, just the very start of a documentary that was screened on ABC, that's the public broadcasting channel in Australia, uh, in uh, 2018. Uh, and, uh, and 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 let, let, I want you just to listen to this first minute, if you would, Rebecca, and then we'll tell me how badly wrong they got it. Hello and welcome to Four Corners. Tonight, we begin our special three-part investigation into the story of the century, the election of US President Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. Since his inauguration, President Trump has been caught up in a rolling series of allegations. More than a year ago, Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller was appointed to investigate Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 election and whether Trump or his campaign officials helped them. 
Also under investigation are Trump's business links with Russia, testing allegations that his deal-making has exposed him to compromise. Over the next few weeks, you'll meet the characters at the centre of this extraordinary saga. We begin by following the spies and the money trail. Uh, Rebecca, I, sh I, sh I should just say, the point of background, my taxes pay for that sort of broadcasting, but that was Sarah Ferguson, of the, one of the ABC's most senior reporters, reporting on the Russian destabilisation of the American campaign via Trump. Now, how much truth was there in that? I mean, was there any truth? You were in the intelligence services uh, before that time. You would have followed this closely. This is 100% wrong, Nick. And uh, not only wrong, it's actually dangerous because what happened, and, and you're, um, you know, the ABC is not the only one that got it wrong. I mean, the US media was just filled with these uh, science fiction narratives of uh, the Trump-Russia uh, collusion. And you mentioned that it is the uh, Russians who fueled this uh, fairy tale. But guess who amplified it? The Obama administration's uh, intelligence officials, the upper echelons, the corrupt types. The director of national intelligence, James Clapper, the director of uh, FBI, James Comey, and the director of CIA, John Brennan, within the Obama administrations, they were the ones who misused intelligence resources and misdirected them to dig dirt on Trump instead of actually following the Russian threat and trying to figure out what Putin was up to. And this is actually why we are in this situation today, Nick. Um, I believe that uh, President Joe Biden has the Ukrainians' blood on his hands because he was the vice president at that time, right? And uh, this, this is really uh, outrageous because it dragged our country through years and years of chaos, political dysfunction. We are right now polarized along racial, um, religious, immigration status line, you name it. We can't even talk to each other, uh, Nick. When we go, like families meet together, you know, for Thanksgiving or any other holidays, if you're on the opposite side of the political spectrum, it is literally like warfare, you know, and, um, and and so it's very, very dangerous. So meantime, Putin was doing what he was doing. Um, he did, I want to say, the Russian intelligence wanted to interfere in U.S. elections, but not for the purpose of electing Trump, is to foment discord and disorder. And guess who helped him? U.S. Yeah. corrupt U.S. spy agencies did. So, so essentially... You know, yes, they do interfere in elections, probably more effectively uh, than we even imagine. But the, the aim is not to elect one candidate or the other. It, it's simply to uh, build tensions within American society, uh, to to destabilize American society. Uh, but and and they're doing this based on a deep understanding of how Americans think and behave. Is that essentially it? Absolutely. So the Russians do their homework on their top threat, right? And back in 2010, uh, Russian military doctrine officially codified the United States and NATO as their security threat number one. 
So there was a requirement placed on military and intelligence services and the entire uh, Putin's uh, national security apparatus to develop a strategy. And you called it exactly correct to destabilize. The, the actual strategy is called controlled instability. And uh, Valery Gerasimov, the chief of Russia's general staff, is the thought leader behind that strategy. They actually... Um, figured out by studying the American society that if you can, you know, impact or influence rather the Americans' minds, you can achieve incredible damage. So they have something that's called information confrontation. It's kind of like a, a, our version of a cyber doctrine, but it's very different from the blue, right, that from the U.S. and Western cyber doctrine, because the Russian one includes a technical aspect and a psychological aspect. Not only they hack our networks, right, to, um, uh, to cause, you know, uh, supply shortages, you know, they do ransomware, you know, to cause shortages in our gas and our meat supply, but they also ultimately uh, go on social media to uh, hack our minds where they pose as Americans and they try to stir, you know, tensions between uh, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and, uh, and uh, liberals, you know, black versus whites and all of those things. And the reason why they're able to do it is exactly why you said is because they pay attention and they do their homework. And uh, they not only do it in the U.S., they do it in uh, Europe and uh, everywhere, really. Well, Australia, I mean, we had the experience here at the Mentis Research Centre, you know, a humble think tank in Australia. We suddenly found that we had another uh, 2,000 people overnight had enrolled for our newsletter. Every one of them uh, had a Russian email address. Uh, it was a rather crude attempt to do who knows what, and we were able to to change it and increase our, our level of uh, security. But it, to me, it was proof that even in that instance, in a rather ham-fisted way, they were interested in what was going on here in Australia in terms of politics and interested because they wanted to influence it. Oh, absolutely. And uh, they are a uh, an ally of China, and China is close. It's a, it's a threat to Australia, right? And uh, so any kind of influence that uh, benefits Russia... Uh, on Australia, benefits China as well. And uh, in general, the current situation is really not about Ukraine, um, the conflict. It's about who is going to control Eurasia, right? Uh, is it Russia? Is it the U.S.? Is it China? And what will the world look like in 10, 20 years? Is it going to be more like the West and the United States and Australia, the democratic societies? right, where um, there's a primacy of the individual versus the state, even though we have, like, internal forces that are trying to change that, you know, and especially now there seems to be so much uh, government control. But overall, at least we were founded on the principles of democracy. And so the Russians and the Chinese wants to change that. And so what will the world look like? Is it going to be more like Russia and China? Or is it going to be more like Australia and America and, and, and Europe? And that remains to be seen. And that's why you see all these 
covert influence operations conducted by the Russians, and I'm certain by the Chinese as well. They are trying to set up their Confucius Institute to spread their propaganda, their worldview. So that is the ultimate battle. At the Menzies Research Center, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Center from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Here in Australia, I think we've been much more focused on China for obvious reasons. You know, the big trading partners, they're, they're, they're closer to us really in geographic terms or so we feel their sphere of influence certainly is closer. Uh, so the and, and we know a lot, I mean, through the work of uh, some excellent journalism by people like Shari Marks, and we know something of the, the infiltration by Chinese intelligence services into, you know, Australian universities, for example. Uh, we know this is going on and we know it's very serious. So I suppose what I'm interested to know is how strong is the bond between Beijing and Moscow on this? I mean, is it that they share information? Do they work in concert or, or are they both just involved in the same form of disruption and, and each one just, just goes its own way? What's happening? So the relationship, Nick, is more nuanced than uh, you would know, you know, reading just from the media because the media portrays it. Um, as though Russia and China are strategic partners. But uh, they just uh, fall into the trap of the Russian and Chinese propaganda and disinformation. The Russians and the Chinese, they do want uh, the rest of the world, especially you know, the United States, Australia, Europe, to believe that they are like this, you know, that they are just buddies, um, in reality, it's more of a marriage of convenience. Um, there's a Russian saying, um, against whom are we going to be friends today? So Russia and China are friends against the West. They both view us as a threat, and to the extent that they can uh, collaborate to present security challenges to us, uh, US, Australia, uh, Europe, that's what they do, right? If they, God forbid, somehow synchronize operations, offensive operations, let's say in Ukraine and China um, would mount a serious uh, military operation in Taiwan, right? We will be spread out. Um, the United States just uh, withdrew from Afghanistan right after 20 years having spent 2.2 trillion dollars uh, and lost 6,000 American lives. Like clearly we can't even handle one war because we think that technology and weaponry wins wars and it doesn't. And the Russians and Chinese know that it doesn't. That's why they both develop asymmetric strategy. Uh, against the United States that and Europe um, 
and the West in general that targets our vulnerabilities. And uh, so if we are presented with a possibility of two escalating conflicts in various parts, you know, Russia and China, it will be very difficult for the Pentagon to mount a, a serious response. And unfortunately, we're always behind the curve, you know, just like with Russia, you know, we're behind the curve with China. And that is, again, because those cultures, they're very long-term, you know, minded. So the Russians do their intelligence analysis 50 years out. We, like, look in front of our nose and and so we need to switch that type of mentality if we are to really successfully counter these looming threats well let's talk about the american preparedness you you were in the intelligence services uh, during the period first of all of the obama administration and you'd remember i'm sure that uh, seminal moment in the presidential um, uh, election debate of 2000 and 12, when uh, Obama decided to take on Mitt Romney and, and, and mock him because Mitt Romney had said that the greatest strategic threat to the United States was Russia. Uh, it, he made some quip about the 1980s had called to ask for their foreign policy back. But, but clearly at that stage, um, either Obama didn't believe that was true or for whatever strategic reason used, wanted to use it to bash his opponent about the head. But... <laughs> Mitt Romney was right, right? I mean, and, and you're, whilst you were serving in that administration, you must have been aware that Mitt Romney was right. So I, I was livid when I heard that uh, from Obama. I mean, clearly, uh, Senator Romney was listening to his intelligence briefings, and uh, clearly Obama was sleeping through his intelligence briefings, or he was simply lying. You know, I find it incredible that he would... Uh, Mark Senator Romney, because I personally, uh, Nick, briefed scores and scores of Obama's senior Pentagon officials. I briefed NATO, I briefed uh, scores of combatant commanders, four star generals about the Russian threat, um, a key member of the National Security Council within the White House. And so Obama must have been very aware, but uh, nevertheless, he kept pursuing a very foolish Russia reset policy, even though all the facts were staring him in the face that Putin was modernizing his military and developing a sophisticated strategy to take on, um, to basically achieve his goal of reconstituting the uh, Soviet Union and defeating Europe and the United States in the event that they interfere, okay? I want to be clear. Uh, my book is called uh, Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. But that, there's a nuance. So it's a hedge strategy, right? The, um, the Russians are not going to, you know, attack the United States out of the blue. There's no such plan. They fear NATO's uh, superior force. But when it comes to interference, if they perceive whether um, or misperceive even, right, that the United States and NATO is about to intervene, whether it's on behalf of Ukraine or on behalf of any post-Soviet country that uh, Putin wants to take back, that's when Putin unleashes his preemptive doctrine 
that includes very sophisticated uh, nuclear strategy, very sophisticated cyber um, warfare strategy. You know, they can inflict cyber Pearl Harbor type of uh, situation on us, space warfare, you name it, destabilization. Um, so those are the conditions under which Russia would present a, a very formidable threat, and my concern is we're absolutely not prepared. And this is why Putin is very confident, because he knows he has a plan. He also knows that we don't have a plan. And it's clearly demonstrated in the fact that we're grasping at straws, putting all our eggs in the sanctions basket, uh, whereas Biden himself said sanctions were not never supposed to work in the first place. So how does it even make sense? So Putin knows this. But, but, but it's worse than that, I think, from your book. I mean, it's not just that, you know, defense intelligence was asleep at the wheel. You know, they were perhaps taking early afternoons off when they should have been paying more attention or whatever. What you, what you write in the book is that they actively became uh, agents, if you like, inadvertently, of, yes. of of Russian Russia's plans. You write, the American people were hit, therefore, with a double whammy: first by an external Russian adversary, and then by an intern by internal American foes. These highly placed government functionaries, driven by their disdain for the unorthodox presidential candidate, that's Donald Trump, and their desire to displace him, neglected their mission. Instead of identifying and neutralizing threats to American security, they became useful idiot soldiers in Putin's war on America. That's pretty strong talk. Uh, having had time to reflect on it, do you resile from any of that? I, I, I still stand by this. I mean, and we know this right now. Uh, we knew it back when um, the Mueller report came out, right? And I wrote my book before Mueller report um, uh, came out. I was writing it as it was coming out. So basically the Mueller report was validated by analysis that Russians did not collude with Trump and Trump didn't collude with Russians because I knew that the Steele dossier was completely bogus. It, it was served up by uh, to uh, Christopher Steele by uh, Igor Danchenko, a Russian national who was uh, a, a researcher in uh, the Brookings Institution and he was affiliated with uh, Russian intelligence and the FBI suspected that, right? So, uh, but today, the Durham report, the John Durham report, even further validated that uh, not only there was no collusion, but Hillary Clinton herself uh, was involved in this whole operation, meaning that it is on her orders that all of these corrupt officials started digging dirt and, um, and, and dealing. You can't make this up, like taking... Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and based on that, submit four FISA applications to the secret court, right? Uh, not one, not two, but four, in order to survey U.S. citizens, such as Carter Page, such as my former bo boss, uh, General Flynn, General Mike Flynn, who risked his life um, having served in the U.S. military for 30 years, right? And, and these despicable um, individuals that uh, I just named a few minutes ago. They basically weaponized the intelligence processes that were designed 
to uh, uh, to target foreign adversaries, right? And, and they targeted U.S. citizens so they could get to Trump, so they could uh, unseat a democratically elected president. So I 100% stand by my um, statement in that book that you just read. And uh, it just makes me so angry because the Ukrainian people are right now paying for that negligence with their blood. Strong words again, Rebecca. But again, I suspect we're only we're only scratching the surface of this. I mean, Hunter Biden's laptop, right? You know, subject of a a brilliant book by my my former colleague and great friend Miranda Devine, Australian journalist working out of New York. But you know, it's been reported widely the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop that was accidentally left in a repair shop, and then the contents were divulged. I mean. The information in that clearly shows that Hunter Biden uh, was out building relationships with oligarchs right up to the president of the of of this of the of Russia, Vladimir Putin, and that the current president, Joe Biden, uh, was not only aware of this but was encouraging this and was using this chiefly, I think, as a source of funds for him, himself, probably his campaign. I mean. <laughs> I look back at Watergate, right, and 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 Richard Nixon and what he was impeached for, and we're here thinking this goes this goes right to the top of the current administration. This 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 compromised, colluding relationship with a country which you say you know we are actually at war with. In actual fact, it it, it, it stuns us on this side of the Pacific. Let me say that. Yes, this is it, it. It's incredible, actually. So, who is the puppet? Remember, Hillary Clinton was crowing, you know, Trump, Putin's puppet, and was spreading this uh, disinformation really on the American people uh, without a shred of evidence, and uh, and not only her. In fact, I wrote this in the book too. In classified sessions behind the closed doors, when uh, the Obama administration's intelligence officials were giving testimonies, whether they saw any direct specific evidence linking Trump to Putin, they all said no. And yet they would go on cable TV and they would call Trump treasonous, Putin's puppet, and all that stuff. And so now, after your colleague Miranda Devine, whom I highly respect, um, uncovered really that uh, there's a link between the Russian government and the oligarchs um, and Hunter Biden. Biden is actually uh, the puppet, right? It, it, it is incredible. And there's evidence that uh, Hunter Biden was given a lot of money by um, the, you know, the wife of the Russian uh, former uh, mayor, um, and uh, it, it's just it, it's just incredible the level of corruption within the Biden administration is just uh, staggering, and uh, it's very very dangerous. So the question becomes now, so um, that people should ask, why did Biden promise Putin that a small incursion will not be punished, right? Does that have something to do with uh, what we found in that laptop? I, if I were a reporter, I would ask that question. 
I'm I'm pinching myself under the table here, Rebecca, because you know, even probably two years ago, I would have thought the conversation of the type we're having was some you know weirdo nutcase conspiracy theory. Uh, I, you know, we I was brought up as a journalist. You know, in the choice between the conspiracy theory and the cock up, go with the cock up every time, and that that rule of thumb has served me very well throughout my journalistic career. But now, I, I tell you, you know, we have we've read the evidence in detail in in other books, including Miranda Devine's. There's more to be read in yours. Uh, you know, it it is it, it is absolutely beyond doubt to my mind on the evidence which which I've read in recent years that, that the American intelligence services and indeed the current in, in, in administration is deeply compromised. And yet these are, you know, they, they, this is Australia's chief ally we're talking about. This is the country that Australia relies on for its security. You know, the ANZUS agreement, the promise that the United States will come to our aid if we're attacked by another force. Should we should we begin to be becoming more aware that perhaps we have to start looking after ourselves a little bit more? Well, I want to first I want to make it clear, uh, Nick, that the uh, there's a distinction between the uh, the top level you know echelons of the spy agencies, the U.S. intelligence community, right? and the worker bees, you know, people like me and my colleagues, right? They're, these are dedicated professionals committed to the mission, would do everything to protect, um, you know, the United States and our allies, such as Australia. Uh, and it's the same with the Western intelligence services, right? We are, Australia is part of the five, what we call the five eyes, right? I worked with, um, with Australian colleagues. They're also dedicated professionals, you know, excellent at what they do. And so I, um, I think Australians should rest assured that the United States will always be its ally and will always, you know, place Australia's security at the top of the list. At the same time, I just would uh, recommend that just like we, the American people, are now becoming cognizant of the fact that there are some corrupt individuals and they are willing to do just about anything, including dragging the country through years of turmoil based on, on just false allegations. So I, I, they need to be, people just need to be cognizant uh, about that and be open-minded about that. And um, on with regard to, do you need to uh, worry about your own security as well? Um, yeah, I think everybody needs to chip in towards the uh, common defense kitty, right? Whether it's the NATO members or, or anyone else needs to prioritize their security first um, because that's just that's just how it is. Because if Russia and China perceive that we're just not committed to our security, they, you know, are very happy to uh, fill the vacuum and uh, to destabilize anywhere that they can find a soft spot. So, so, so again, do not worry. We always will be your, um, you know, ally. Um, that's just a given. Mm. It's just a given. Well, I'm. I'm reassured by that. You know, as we were very reassured in this country by uh, President Biden's 
uh, agreement with uh, three-way agreement with uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the UK and Prime Minister Scott Morrison here uh, to enter the AUKUS uh, defence arrangement, whereby we will share uh, a special relationship and, in particular, uh, nuclear submarine technology. Uh, that I think is possibly uh, well, not just possibly. That was probably the most important thing that. Scott Morrison has so far accomplished as Prime Minister, and, and certainly we're very grateful to the US uh, for uh, recognising the need for that and agreeing to it. Um, but um, it still leaves this nagging doubt about the, the, the condition of, Aust of uh, US society, the condition of Western society more generally, and, and how much this is really playing into the hands of our enemies. Let me read again from your book. During the past few years, I've increasingly felt like I was back in the USSR. The rise of pervasive political correctness, growing intolerance towards religious people, and alienation of and even attacks on people whose views don't conform to the mainstream orthodoxy remind me of my childhood and youth in the USSR. I find myself repeating the same admonitions to my young children that my mother frequently gave to me and my sister, don't believe everything that you hear on TV. Think for yourself and keep your and your family's views private. Uh, that resonates because I think many of us experience that to a greater or lesser extent here in Australia too, that there are certain things that we cannot say. And I have to say during the COVID pandemic, we felt that quite intensely that the subject of COVID has become highly politicized here as it has in the United States. Not only that, but an orthodoxy prevails that uh, really very tightly defines what can and cannot be said on that topic in the public square. It was, co was COVID been an acceleration of a, a pre-existing trend, do you think, or, 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 or was it the start of this? I think uh, it was, there was a pre-existing condition um, of uh, political cor correctness spreading that I noticed even before COVID, right? Um, and that is because, so the school started teaching, you know, things that I've noticed um, that were more like, you know, oriented towards socialism. And I increasingly felt like my children were indoctrinated in the same way. And we actually pulled, my husband and I pulled um, our kids out of public schools and put them into Catholic schools, even though we're Jewish, but Catholic schools were the only one who really teach the foundational principle on which America was built or, or any Western society, right? Democracy, freedom, self-reliance. So, um, so all of that political correctness started before. And I remember my kids, uh, so we live in a very, very liberal uh, area close to Washington, D.C. And my family, just like growing up in Russia, right? My family was anti-communist and uh, were, my parents didn't want us to uh, speak openly about that. The same thing, uh, my kids would go to school and uh, one day my daughter actually wore, uh, she was very little at that time, uh, like eight, uh, eight or something, she wore a Trump hat. Oh boy, she was attacked. And so from that point on, I just told my kids that you gotta keep, uh, you gotta keep quiet. But COVID just amplified this whole thing 
and uh, the political correctness. And I think at this point has become actually dangerous because they are silencing the views of legitimate doctors like medical doctor, Dr. Malone, who does not agree, who was on Tucker Carlson's uh, show. And uh, he was simply presenting the facts uh, with regard to vaccine, with regard to COVID. And because his views don't align with the orthodoxy, he was banned and deplatformed and, and all of these things. And the reason it's dangerous right now, because if we, if we, you know, eliminate a legitimate hypothesis, right, in science, the West, America, Australia, the West in general, is going to stop being the leader in medical research, in pharmaceuticals, and, and uh, we're not going to be able to develop, you know, this amazing, you know, um, uh, medical drugs that we have that cures cancer or like cancer no longer is like a terminal disease, right? With the, with the very minor exception or do the, all these amazing surgeries that we've been able to do is because we don't take alternative hypotheses at face value and allow for the truth to come out because it is only with the plurality of opinion that democracy has been built on that you can achieve the true you know understanding of what the ground truth is and then based on that develop innovative approaches in any kind of industry okay thank you i'm going to look to you now rebecca in closing for, for just a glimmer of optimism i just want a glimmer of optimism from you and and um uh, you know when people here say constantly look we you know we, we just feel totally hemmed in by you know these strange new ideologies that have take, taken hold you know things like transgender rights critical race theory etc etc we all know what they are uh, and that they feel uh, my message to them is often well look you're not the only one who feels like that in fact most people probably do they're just too frightened to say so and we should look to the example of uh, the Soviet Union probably outside of Russia, but possibly inside of Russia too, that when things changed in the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, they changed very quickly because as soon as one person is prepared to stand up and say, well, I don't believe this, this is dangerous, this is wrong, this is harming us, uh, then other people have the courage to do so too. So we just need to have the courage to speak out as you know, the Polish shipyard workers did, um, as the Catholic Church did in Poland and, and, and everybody else around the Soviet Union who was prepared to day up and say, I'm not standing for this anymore. Is, is that right? Can, can, is in the end the way to change things, to be, have the, the boldness to speak up? Yes, absolutely. And what gives me confidence is that I see when I travel outside of our area, and in fact, I just, um, I was in Nashville uh, in Tennessee for Governor Mike Huckabee's show to talk about my book. And the situation there, I think, is completely different. Like, nobody wears a mask. People are normal. They don't, you know, malign you if you disagree with them. And they speak the truth. And so I see people like yourself and like Miranda Devine and like Tucker Carlson and, you know, and, and, and others in America and in Australia willing to step up you know, especially it's important to do that if you have a platform, right? Because there's so many people, like you said, um, they're just frightened. They maybe they think that way, uh, but they're frightened to express their opinion. And they shouldn't be frightened, Nick, because guess what? Nobody really throws us in jail 
yet in America for speaking truth to power, whereas in Russia, it, in, in the Soviet Union, that was the case. This, uh, people who were dissidents were thrown into mental hospitals, designated as crazy. They were jailed. People today are jailed, right? People uh, right now, they're protesting in Moscow, um, ranging from 3,400 people to 8,000 people uh, expressing their... Um, you know, uh, their disappointment and anger over Putin's uh, attack on Ukraine, right? And those people can potentially serve three to eight years jail time, and yet they're willing to come out and speak truth to power. So we have nothing to be afraid of. We should all speak truth to power and just stick with it and tell us no. We disagree, you know, uh, with, with your policy. We disagree with your opinion and just be very vocal about it. Yes, I am optimistic. Rebecca Koffler, your book, Putin's Playbook, is about to be republished with a updated post-Ukraine invasion uh, introduction by Wilkinson Publishing here in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, we'll put details on the notes to this broadcast, to this podcast, uh, with where you can go to buy a copy of that book. I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you very much for, for writing the book and thank you for joining us today on the Water Cooler Conversation. Thank you so much. It's been really uh, delightful to, uh, to have this talk with you, Nick. Thank you. You've been listening to another Water Cooler Conversation coming to you from the Mentis Research Centre. If you'd like to support this great free content and keep it free, then why not subscribe to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater for the Menzies Research Centre. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.